Well, good evening. Uh, My name's Beth and I'm reading the Bible tonight. We're all going to read from Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, This is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But Did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, What are these, my lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, They are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these seventy years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. Therefore this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Uh, Good evening, everyone. My name is Mark. It's good to have you with us. Uh, Show of hands. Who has studied the book of Zechariah before? Don't be shy. Okay. I'm going to take a guesstimate that that's at most 10% of us who have spent any time at all in the book of Zechariah. Uh, We are getting into the weeds, folks. This is um, part of the Bible that probably a lot of us have got a lot to learn about. So really exciting that we get to spend this whole term uh, seeing what God is saying to us in this quite unfamiliar book. I'm going to pray again, ask for God's help, and then uh, we'll have a think about uh, Zechariah 1. Uh, Gracious God, thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that every single syllable 
Every single word, every single sentence was breathed out by you and recorded for our benefit. And thank you that we have the privilege now of reading this ancient book, uh, recalling your dealings with Israel some two and a half thousand years ago. But thank you that we don't just read this tonight at a distance, but we read it up close with you, with you speaking directly to us. We know that we have much to hear tonight, so please help us to be attentive, help us to be receptive to the things that you say, both the words of comfort and the words of challenge. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, being a Christian today in Western countries, uh, I think it probably feels very different to how it felt 100 years ago. I wouldn't know, but I'm guessing 100 years ago felt very different to be a Christian. 50 years ago felt very different to be a Christian. Even 20 years ago, I think, you would have had quite a different experience being a Christian in a Western country 20 years ago. Uh, That is the argument, the thesis, if you like, of uh, this little book called Being the Bad Guys by Steve McAlpine. It won the Australian Christian Book of the Year Award last year. This is our book of the term this term. So I'm encouraging you to buy a copy of this. We can sell it to you tonight for 15 bucks. If you don't want to buy it through us, you'll pay 20 bucks at a bookstore. So you know where to go for it. Um, Being a Christian is hard. The subtitle is How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't. I want to read for you uh, part of the introduction to this book. It's kind of a long quote, so uh, you'll have to listen along. Steve says, Only a few generations ago, Christianity was the good guy, the solution to what was bad. Rather than being on the wrong side of the law, we were the law. Christian morality was assumed and passed mainly unchallenged. The cultural, legal, and political power structures affirmed Christians Then something changed. Over the course of the 20th century, we became just one of the guys, one option among many, a voice to be considered but not to be followed unquestioningly. If Christianity worked for you, fine. If it didn't work for me, also fine. Most of us think we still live in that world. Most Christian books, sermons and podcasts assume that we do. In many ways, we've only just worked out how to live well as one of the guys. But the problem is that that's not where we are now. The tide has shifted further. Increasingly, Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. Christianity is no longer an option. It's a problem. The cultural, political, and legal guns that Christianity once held are now trained on us. And it's happened quickly. The number of those professing faith has fallen dramatically. The number of those who reject the faith that they held until their late teens has risen dramatically. The seat at the cultural table that we assumed was ours for keeps is increasingly being given to others. We're on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of so many issues and conversations. If this were a Western, we would be the guy wearing the black hats whose appearance is accompanied by the foreboding soundtrack. It's come as a surprise. We're not sure how it happened. We don't like it. And we don't feel like we deserve it, but we are the bad guys now. That's what this book is about. And uh, I bought this book this morning and I'd like to give it away to someone. Is someone interested in reading this book this term? I'd love to give it to you, Mike. Um, <laughs> Mike's, uh, sorry, Steve's uh, thesis, as I've said, is that being a Christian in the Western world right now can be very hard. Because being seen as a bad guy 
feels very draining. And perhaps you don't need me to tell you that tonight. Perhaps you're already quite familiar with the increasing heat that's being put on Christians. Perhaps you've already felt the sting of an inhospitable world pushing back against you belonging to Jesus. It's very easy, I think, at that point to start to feel disillusioned, disappointed, uh, generally kind of fed up with the whole situation, the position that we have in society these days. Uh, The danger, of course, is that as that pressure grows, we will start to lose hope. We will perhaps start to give up, question whether it's worth holding on during this time. Now, in the book of Zechariah, which, as I've said, I think is just about the most neglected book in the Bible, uh, God speaks dramatically to his people at a moment when they were feeling disillusioned, disappointed, and generally fed up about their lot in life. And God gives to them, through Zechariah, a vision of hope. Uh, The year is 520 BC as we start this book. Uh, Some 20 years earlier, the people of Israel have started to kind of dribble back from the land of Babylon, where they have spent 70 years in exile. But I think by this point, it's fair to say that the novelty of coming back home to the land of their ancestors to rebuild the kingdom that they once had that was once so great, the novelty's worn off. Uh, To be honest, life is a bit of a letdown for Israel as we jump into this book because the land of Judah that they're coming back to, it has been shrunk. It's now an area only of about 50 k's by 60 k's. It's a small fraction of what it used to be. It's too small to have a functional economy. The people are basically living in poverty at this point. They don't have a standing army. The Jewish calendar has been abolished and replaced by the Babylonian calendar. Israel has gone in the space of about a generation from top dog to dog food at this stage. And there's relational tensions within the nation too. You can imagine, can't you? As those people come back from exile, they are looking down their noses at those commoners who stayed behind in the land. Uh, Those people who stayed behind in the land are suspicious of the ones who are returning, who look and smell a bit like Babylonians at this point. All is not well for Israel, but as God has the habit of so wonderfully doing, God sends his man right at this moment. The prophet Zechariah, he is given a task to bring God's word to a people who are pretty hard-pressed, even a bit despondent, people who are on the back foot and who are unpopular in the community. And so I think you can already see that this book is going to have a lot to teach us over this term. Now, today we're going to be looking at the opening to the book of Zechariah, verses 1 to 6, which is kind of like the introduction, really, to the whole book. And then we're going to have a look just at the first of Zechariah's dramatic night visions that he he has here. So the book starts here in verses 1 to 6. Zechariah calls his his fellow Israelites to come home. That's what this introduction is is saying. Come home. Let's have a look at uh, how the the words start. We'll pick it up from verse 2. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors, Uh, Zechariah starts by spitting fire at his people. Uh, Perhaps this is part of the reason why Zechariah is not such a popular book. It starts with a condemnation. And actually, uh, the original language puts it far worse than the English translation. It says that literally God is angry with your fathers in his anger. (laughs) This is 700 years of Israel's history summed up in a sentence. You made God really mad. That's kind of where Zechariah starts. He's saying that the actions and the attitudes of their forefathers had driven their God, Yahweh, the covenant God, to send them off to Babylon. And now they're back. 
And the big question is, well, has anything changed for Israel? Have they learned anything from this period of punishment? And they've made it back to Jerusalem, but have they actually come back home to God to delight in him and to obey him? Well, that's not quite so clear. Have a look at from verse 3. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Zechariah calls on his people, God's people, to return to God. Which you can imagine, that would have been a very puzzling thing for them to be hearing from the prophet. I mean, hadn't they already returned? They'd come back 20 years ago. Weren't they home already? Well, God is saying here, no, actually, you're not home yet. Because there's a difference between returning to Jerusalem and returning to the God of Jerusalem. You see, the the enduring issue which had led to the exile, it's told us there in in, uh, verse 4 that God's people had been refusing to listen to God. That was why God allowed Babylon to come in and conquer them and take them away. And that issue, that refusal to listen to God, cannot be fixed by just getting on a bus back to Jerusalem. Coming home to God only happens when you start listening to God again. You see how these people were like so many of us. We may come to church geographically, but it says nothing about whether we're listening to God, whether our hearts have actually turned to him. And so what Zechariah does here, in order to try and motivate his uh, fellow Israelites to return to God, is he reminds them of a few hard truths. Did you notice as you were reading through uh, how frequently Zechariah refers to God as the Lord Almighty? says it again and again, the Lord Almighty, the Lord Almighty. That's an English phrase which translates uh, literally the Lord of hosts. You may have heard that's the old-fashioned way of saying the Lord of armies. That's what this is saying. Return to me, the God who is the Lord of armies, who has limitless forces at his disposal. Now, uh, before the exile, earlier in Israel's history, that was quite a common way for Israel to talk about God because he was the God who fought for Israel in all of their military battles. Whenever they went into battle, God was with them, behind them, beside them, before them, and so Israel conquered all comers. But by this point, you see, Israel are a nation of losers. (laughs) They, They don't even have their own national army at this point. They don't have any hosts But the point is that that doesn't matter because God is the Lord of hosts. He's the one whose power has remained undiminished. Uh, This is the God who assures victory. You cannot defeat this God. You cannot avoid this God. You cannot put up a strong fight against this God. According to Zechariah, the only hope in the face of such a powerful God is to come to him as an ally. There's no hope trying to run from this God, trying to stick your fingers in your ears and ignore him. Look what he says in verse 5. Where are your ancestors, Israel? Where are they? Well, they, they died in exile, didn't they? And the prophets, do they live forever? No, no. They died too. But did not my words and decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Yes, that's exactly what happened. 
Now, this idea of kind of being overtaken, perhaps you could think of like a lion chasing down a zebra on the African savannah. You know, eventually this strong, powerful lion is going to catch up to its target and it's going to strike and pin it down and tear it to bits. That zebra is being overtaken, literally, at that point. So with this metaphor, God is saying, you can try and ignore me. You can spend your whole life running away from me, ignoring what I say, but in the end, you will be overrun. You will face my judgment at the end of it all. These are sobering warnings from Zechariah, aren't they? But did you notice for the the seriousness, the weightiness of these warnings, they are matched by the tenderness of the incredibly gracious offer that God makes here in verse 3. Return to me and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. Return to me and I will return to you. Do you notice in that that phrase the absolute lack of qualifications that are given there? Uh, Who is it that is eligible to return to God? Who is it that God will open up his arms to? It's anyone, literally everyone who returns to him. That's the only qualification. If you will only stop and realize that you've been careening down the very road that led to Israel's exile, if you'll only stop and admit that you are someone who has ignored God and turned back to him, then God will greet you with open arms. And thankfully, that's exactly what the nation of Israel did in verse 6. Zechariah has preached this warning to them, and look what they do. Verse 6, then they Repented. Literally, it's the same word. They returned. And they said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. What a wonderful picture of, of humble repentance that is. And I think it's good to know, sometimes we hear the word repentance, we think, oh, they must have really turned their lives around. They must have been so wicked that they needed to repent and come back to God. It's important that we understand that the people that Zechariah is preaching to were not especially morally bad people. Uh, they didn't seem to have a problem with idolatry anymore. The exile seems to have more or less cured them of that. Their problem wasn't sexual immorality, for instance. Their problem was that actually they were just a little bit indifferent towards God, a bit apathetic. They were just living their normal everyday lives without any reference to God. That was their sin, and that's what they needed to repent of. And when they did, God welcomed them home. Now, to state the obvious, you and I are not living in the land of Israel in 520 BC. Uh, Our God has not sent to us a messenger to warn us about these things. He has sent to us his son, hasn't he? The Lord Jesus. And do you remember how Jesus' own ministry starts at the beginning of the gospel accounts? He hits the scene with the same ferocity, the same furious call that Zechariah starts with. Repent, says Jesus, on the first page of the gospels. Repent, come home to God, believe the good news. Jesus invites all people to come to him, God incarnate. And in fact, Jesus makes this this promise to us. John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. An unqualified invitation from Jesus. Uh, If you read the book uh, of the term last term, which was Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, he reflects on that incredible invitation from Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, The only thing required to enjoy such love is to come to him. 
to ask him to take us in. He doesn't say, whoever comes to me with sufficient contrition or whoever comes to me feeling bad enough for their sin or whoever comes to me with redoubled efforts. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The call of Zechariah and the call of Jesus are remarkably simple. Come home. Come home by listening to Jesus, by embracing the truth about Jesus and by running into his waiting arms. If you are not a Christian here tonight, may I humbly say that this is your greatest, your most pressing, your most overwhelming need. You need to come home to Christ. Uh, Don't make the mistake that just because you've come to church, therefore you've come to God. No. Turn your heart back to God. Come to Jesus. Tonight would be a great night to do that. That really is the introduction to the whole book of Zechariah that will help us to understand where Zechariah goes. And so the next question is, well, if we do come to God... (laughs) If we turn our hearts back to him, what then? What will life be like for us to live in a world where God's people are no longer on top? Well, this is where the visions come in. So we're going to have a look at the first vision in verses 7 to 17, which teach that for people who have come to God, what do they need to do? They need to wait in hope. This is what this first vision is all about, wait in hope. Uh, I'm at a a stage of life at the moment where uh, with three young kids, uh, I'm pretty familiar with disturbed sleep. Um, the last time I, I slept through the whole night uninterrupted has passed from living memory. I'm not sure when it was. And I'm not sure when the next night that I will be able to do that will be. But I'll tell you what, I, I wouldn't trade it for Zechariah's position at all. <laughs> what I'm dealing with these days is far more preferable than what Zechariah is dealing with. Because you see, over the course of one night, and it's recorded here in the next six chapters, Zechariah is bombarded with this technicolor visions of what God is going to do in the world. And they are shocking, startling, unsettling kinds of visions to be forced to reckon with. And so we're going to pick up the first vision there from verse 8. Verse 8, it says, During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. Now, just a note here, you think, red horse, never seen one of them before. What is this, like My Little Pony or something? Uh, Red is probably a bad translation here. A lot of other translations will call it a chestnut horse. That's probably more accurate. The point is, this is not some weird hypercolor horse. It's a normal horse. It's just a chestnut horse, so... uh, Put that in your mind. Here is this man. He's standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were other red, chestnut, brown, and white horses. So you get the picture? Loads of horses in this scene. Presumably each of those horses have riders on them themselves, as they do. I think that's implied there. Verse 9, I asked, what are these, Lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, they're horses, duh. No, he said, I will show you what they are. Uh, And then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, this is helpful, they, all these horses and the riders on them, they are the ones who the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. Now, for Zechariah's audience, they would have had a a lot of connotations here. They would have understood what this picture was kind of referring to because the Persians were famous for their mounted patrols who ranged far and wide all over their vast empire, checking to see whether any of the the nations that they had subdued were beginning to revolt and, and rise up. And so this picture here of these angelic 
horsemen. They are like the biblical uh, non-scary equivalent of the ringwraiths or the Nazgul from the Lord of the Rings. If you can kind of picture that, there they are scouting out the land, trying to keep a track of what is going on. The point behind this vision is that God knows exactly what's going on across the whole earth. He's got his satellite surveillance system. Uh, he's not blind to what is happening. God is not sitting up in heaven going, hang on, what? The nations despise me? Hang on, I didn't know about that. What are they doing to my people over there? Gosh, where did this come? No, God knows what is going on. He sees everything. And, and so what is it that these writers find on their journey? Well, verse 11, we've gone throughout the whole earth and found, and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Boy, that sounds good, doesn't it? Rest and in peace. It sounds very Christmassy. Lovely. What could be wrong with this? Well, a lot could be wrong with this. Look what the angel says in verse 12. He cries out in response to this, to the Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you've been angry with these 70 years? It turns out that this peace that the writers have found in the world, it's the bad kind of peace. It's the God's enemies are on top with no signs of comeuppance kind of a peace. So think about this for a second. God's people have come home. They're back in the land. Exile has finished, sort of. What's the problem? The problem is that God's people are still being maligned and ignored and despised. Uh, the problem is that the nations still do not acknowledge that God is the king. The problem is that there are people all over the world who are content to ignore God and carry on in their sin. What this is describing is the kind of peace that the world finds without the gospel. This is the kind of peace that Wollongong experiences today as tens of thousands of people thumb their nose at God. So does God have anything to say to a world like that? Yes, he does. The Lord knows that right now we are seen as the bad guys. And verse 13, God has got some kind and comforting words to speak to us today. And here is the essence of God's message to us in our situation. Verse 14, here it is. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. <laughs> Where does our comfort come from in this hostile world? Where do we find hope when so many people scorn their creator? Our comfort, our hope, is in the passion and the grace of God. The exclusive, jealous, loving determination of God to gather people for himself, for his glory through the gospel. Now that, that language there of God being jealous for his people, maybe that language kind of re repulses us a little bit. Jealousy has such negative connotations. We think of it as this kind of evil possessiveness, right? But when the Bible talks about God's jealousy, it's not talking about it like that. This is God's loving protectiveness. This is the attitude that a good husband ought to feel towards his wife, to want to protect her. Any decent husband is going to want to stand up for his wife and likewise the wife for her husband. God is saying through, through these words, I am jealous for you because I love you. I love you and therefore I am going to protect you. This is God's protective love. So you see, God is passionately committed to his people and it's because he has this commitment to us that he says that he's going to do something. And he reminds us here from verse 15 of some promises. 
promises that he made to his people in generations past. He says in verse 15 that he's going to free these people from their oppressors. That was a very famous promise that God made through the prophet Isaiah some 200 years earlier. This is not new. And he says there also that he's going to return to Jerusalem and restore the temple, which is, again, a promise that he'd made earlier through the prophet Jeremiah some 80 or 100 years earlier. This is not new promises here. Verse 16, therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Have you got what God is saying through this vision, friends? He's saying, I do see what's going on. I've got my patrols out in the in the world. I'm not blind to what is happening. I can see it. It may have caught you by surprise that the world now sees you as the bad guys, but it hasn't caught me by surprise. So here's what you need to do. Remember my promises. Remember them. Cling to my words that I've spoken to you. Even though it has been a long time waiting, I am coming back. I will restore all things. I will make everything right. Just wait in hope. That's what this vision is all all about. And at this point, I think we can see that Zechariah speaks a very relevant word to us in our generation. Because just like Zechariah's generation, we live in that gap between the promises that God has made and their fulfillment. God has promised to dwell with us, to bring justice for his people, to restore all things. And there's a sense in which we've started to see those promises come to to fruition. Jesus has come to earth. He's made his dwelling with us. And because of his death and resurrection, the powers of evil have been defeated and the restoration of all things has begun. But that final fulfillment of those promises is still in the future for us, friends. We are still looking forward to the day when we will have unrestricted access to God's presence in heaven, when sin and evil will be fully and finally eradicated, when all things will be made brand new. That glorious day is yet to come. And so it is inevitable for us, just as it was for Israel in 520 BC, that we would feel disillusioned and disappointed and generally fed up about our situation. And in those times, in times like this, it's right for us to cry out like the angel does in verse 12, how long, O Lord, how long will you allow this to continue, God's people to be trampled on in this world? How long until you fulfill your promises to us, Father? It's okay to cry out those things. But in those moments when when the tension feels the highest, we must not forget or doubt the promises of God, even when they feel like so long in coming. For Zechariah's generation, they had lived most of their lives waiting and waiting and waiting. And it would have been very easy to question, you know, is, is, is this ever going to happen? Is God ever going to keep his word? Are things ever going to get better for me and my people? Where is this promise that God has spoken? It would have been very easy to give up hope. And so it's into that situation that Zechariah speaks for us a word of comfort and perseverance and hope. Our promise-making God will keep all his promises to us. He is jealous for us. He will not let us go. 
the God who loves us so much that he sent his son for us. He will give us all things with him one day. And so we can wait, can't we? (laughs) We can wait in certain hope that it won't always be this difficult to be one of God's people because we know that the Lord of hosts, the powerful God of the universe, is bringing that glorious future that he promised for us. Let me pray. Almighty God, we confess that we are people who have blocked our ears to your words. We've turned our hearts away from you. And we do not try to hide this, Lord, because you know everything. And so, Lord, please, for each one of us, would you turn our hearts back to you? Free us from the foolishness of thinking that just because we are geographically amongst your people that we are part of your people. And Lord, for anyone here tonight who has not turned their heart back to you in repentance, I ask that tonight might be the night that they turn in trust towards the Lord Jesus who promises to never cast them out if they come to him. And Lord, for those of us who do belong to you, and who are finding it hard living in a world that increasingly hates us. Please refresh us and remind us of your great promises and of your faithful track record of keeping every single one. Help us to know that a day is coming when all of your promises will be seen to be finally fulfilled and we will be with you forever. And we ask, Lord, that you would speed that day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.